0: Oh most gracious heavenly Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your engagement with us. Your willingness to intrude into our lives by way of your salvation and then your continued faithfulness in our lives by way of your presence, your the leading of your spirit. We just thank you. You're an amazing God who even allowed his son to die that we might be reconciled back to you. We ask that you would please guide us this day in what we're learning and that we would apply it in such a way that would be honoring to you, and it would bring change to our hearts and our actions. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the study is, Do You Believe? 12 Historic Doctrines to Change Your Everyday Life. It's been a while since I've taught this. I think PJ and uh, Pete have uh, both taught this. I know for sure uh, Pete has. Um, We are in the doctrine of omnipotence today. And as you think about this doctrine it It obviously deals with his power omnipotence being his power, but you've got to ask yourself the question: how does his power affect how I live out my walk with christ um, if you don't If we get to the end of today and we don 't have that answered or at least the beginnings of that answered then we've we 've kind of got stuck in the the knowledge side of things and and failed to get to the Application side. Now, that next week is a greater focus on the application. Every one of Paul Tripp's doctrines, excuse me, I shouldn't say Paul Tripp's doctrines. Every one of Paul Tripp's, uh, when he takes on a doctrine, he takes it on first theologically and then he takes it on application wise. So we'll have much more application next week, but we will um, get into a little bit here. If you'll notice, I'm using, rather than green highlight on the handout today to identify questions, I'm using bullet points. So there's three bullet points on the first page that are kind of critical thinking bullet points, uh, meaning that you need to put a couple things together to figure it out. You're not going to find it just strictly based on what we just read. Then there's one on page two, and there's one on page three. So we have a total of of five bullet points, but the first three really are grouped together. So we have three groupings of them. So it, it won't be a lot of... Well, it depends. We'll see what God does uh, in and through you guys and see how much awake you are and how much caffeinated uh, your status is and uh, see what God does with that. All right. So let's start with God is omnipotent. And who's got the mic? There you go.
1: God is omnipotent, almighty in power. He can do without effect, without effort whatever he wills at any
2: time and in any place he chooses to exercise his power. This is the highest possible definition of power. This means God is
1: utterly and completely unique in power. There is nothing in heaven
2: or on earth that is comparable in power to God. God's power has no limits. There is nothing that God cannot do according to his holy will and pleasure, and nothing that can inhibit or stop God's exercise of his power. See, shall we read
0: all those? You can, yeah, you can let all the, uh,
2: see all the references,
0: these as a, the verses go. I want to jump in with a comment. When he says Japan. God's power has no limits, I want to make sure we qualify that statement. God's power is regulated by his character, so we will never see God sin. So just as long as we understand that, we don't get into the game of can he do this or can he do that. Well, then he's not all powerful. Praise be to God that he, he does not be, move beyond his character. And his character is perfectly righteous. And thus he, he, is, in, he is completely trustworthy. So we, we need to make sure we put some of those components together. Okay, let's continue on. Understanding the doctrine of omnipotence of God.
1: Are we doing paragraphs here, like one at a time? or Whatever you want to do. Okay, uh, when it comes to under, to considering the limitless power of God, we are hampered by the fact that everything in our field of experience has limits. The most powerful thing we know has limits to its power, even when you are impressed with the power of something, you are impressed with it because it has pushed the boundaries of expected limits. When we think of power, we normally think uh, i'm sorry, when we think of power, it is normal for us to think of limited power. We would immediately think that someone who thought he could do absolutely anything was ridiculously proud, sadly delusional, or tragically insane.
0: All right, let me jump in there. Um, So, as we think about God, it would be tempting to think in the same way we think about everything else. You may not have realized it before, but one of the things that amazes amazes us about power is when we see uh, people able to push the boundaries of that power, whatever that ability is or what have you. So we have this, this construct in our mind of limit, limited power. And we don't have that with God. It's completely other power. So Let's continue on with this.
1: Here's that creature creator line again. Everything on the creature side of the line is, is limited in power. No person has the power to do anything he or she wants to do. No animal has unlimited power. Everything on this side of the creature-creator line suffers from weakness, inability, and limits. God is utterly unique in power. There are no comparisons to be made. There are no categories to put him in. There are no workable analogies to be made. To say that God is omnipotent is to say that God is God. The consideration of the power of God will always lead us to that age-old rhetorical question, who is a God like our God? But there is value in considering what it means to believe that there is one who sits on the throne of the universe, who has the power to do whatever he chooses to do without question of ability or effort. I want to consider two things in Scripture that define and explain for us the kind of power that is the power of God. Number one, the power of creation, and two, power of resurrection
0: all right let me jump in there Um, he's he's identifying initial creation creation taking making something out of nothing as well as taking parts of things substance and making things but particularly taking starting with nothing and making something only god can do that and then you have a delineation or a, a comparative A comparison of a different kind of power that he wants to focus on the power of resurrection taking something that is dead that has been created but is now dead and giving it life again so those are the two types of power we're going to focus on today all right let's continue on in our study
2: chapter 12 will consider the doctrine of creation in detail but for our purposes here i want to look at creation as a public display of the almighty power of god If you are a Bible believer, you already know and believe that God made this world out of nothing. It was spoken into existence by the power of his will and word. What concerns me are two things. First, we often don't take the time to unpack that which we say we believe, so we therefore are unmoved by the full extent of its glory. Second, I am afraid that amazing truths like the omnipotence of God become familiar items in our theological outline, and because they do, they fail to move us as they once did. Our lives are shaped and directed by what has us in awe. Since we have been hardwired for awe, something will always capture the awe capacity of our hearts, and what has captured our hearts functionally has control over us. If for no other reason, studying the theology of the Word of God is important because it is one of God's primary tools he uses in the recapturing and realigning of our hearts.
0: Okay, I've got it. Uh, Future questions that we need to ask as it relates to. I'm going to read again that which is in italics, just so that we can uh, make sure that we understand and start to process this. It says this, our lives are shaped and directed by by what has us in awe. Since we have been hardwired for awe, don't know if you've ever considered that, since we have been hardwired for awe, something will always capture the awe capacity of our hearts. And what has captured our hearts functionally has control over us. We, we see that borne out in idolatry and those kind of things. So the question is, explain what the author means when he states, what has captured our hearts functionally has control over us. So this is one of those critical thinking ones on a Sunday morning at 9.10 in the morning. Maybe some folks are, are the, the wheels aren't working yet. There's still a little rest from last night. Um, any idea, anyone want to take a shot at what does the author mean when he states what has captured our hearts functionally has control over us? Go ahead, let's give give Stephen a shot.
3: Uh, The word that I've always heard is passions because our heart requires something bigger than ourself even if it's ourself that we're passionate about. So like in scripture it talks about not to yield to the passions of our flesh which lead us to destruction basically.
0: Okay. So the umbrella of passions, we the world will teach you that you have a heart that is passive, that is acted upon, and then it responds to what is acted upon. And the Bible will teach you you have hearts that are active. They're not passive. They are always seeking. They're seeking something. And what the author is saying is one one of, what Stephen is saying is they're, they're seeking in one sense, whatever the heart desires, the desires of the heart, and we, we fight this fight of flesh versus the spirit. So there's that battle according to Galatians that it talks about. But there's another thing going on in that we were wonderfully and fearfully made. We were made in the, the, the means of fear. We have this, this DNA that we have a, a component of fear that looks for awe. We are taken back by that which we recognize as awesome. It stops us in our tracks. And there is this component of fear that is, a, that is a, an, a, an attraction. It is so utterly outside of us that we stop and are in awe of it. We fearfully perceive it if we're perceiving it right and it's good. As something from God, and it brings about a greater awe of God, or it can go the other direction. So when he says, "What has captured our hearts functionally control has control over us," the idea is that our hearts are always seeking. We, whether we know, recognize it or not, seeking that which either pleases us, passions, things that we we find we are attracted towards, and or awe, um, ladies. It was interesting having my wife uh, prepare for the Bible study this week of the Chris Lungard's "Enemy Within" because you guys dealt with this. You guys are actually kind of ahead. Those of you that were you either read it or those that you who read it and were there uh, on uh, this past Thursday, know this is kind of what some of the topic was talking about about awe and Do you remember the the B word that was in the study? Anybody? That's that was. That was he was reminding people that our hearts are drawn to awe and beauty beauty in fact uh what's interesting i've i've uh talked with sean before and one of the things that sean grasps is that music is a me- is a means of beauty that draws us into music is that beauty of, of music the harmony and and all of the there's even mathematical components that that Are amazing to those that understand music greater than I do but it just draws you in the beauty the harmony and 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 the the beat itself so I want us to realize we've got to leave here today recognizing that my heart is always seeking pleasure well let me put it this way it's always wanting something that is pleasing to me I'll put it that way whether it's good or godly or it's not sinful we are also always seeking that which brings awe to us. Awe is part of our DNA makeup. And he grasped that right here. Um, who was it in the women's that mentioned about the awe they had at uh, the um, Grand Canyon? Was that you, Jane? Can we get Jane the mic? Thank you. Jane, I don't mean to put you on the spot. but my, I, sh- I do mean to put you on the spot, but I hope it's OK. <laughs> so kind of explain what you talked about with that, when you, the, the awe you felt when you got... Because you, you had never seen the Grand Canyon in person before, had That's you? That's right, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Yeah,
4: um, I shared in the Ladies' Bible Study about my first visit to the Grand Canyon, which was about three years ago, I think. And, uh, um, of course, standing on the rim, it was awesome. <laughs> it was beautiful. But I wanted to walk down inside to get the feel of what it's like to be surrounded by the Grand Canyon. So we took a short hike down a trail a little ways in um, just, you know, so I could uh, feel that feeling of being down in it. But it was breathtaking. I stood there and was just silent for I don't know how long, just taking it all in. And, I mean, my heart still beats fast now thinking about it. Mm. Uh, but you can't help but think of the glory of God and the awesomeness of God and just the huge, huge uh, canyon there. And I felt so small, just just tiny. And then thinking about, this is just one canyon in the world. I mean, in our country, in the universe, you know, it, God is so much, much bigger. What he's created is so much bigger, even than than this awesome thing I'm standing in. Mm -hmm. And it it just literally blew me away.
0: This awesome thing by which I'm standing on the edge of, this awe-inspiring thing, this thing that draws me into awe of the person that created it, it caused her to stand there and realize the glory, realize experientially or experientially, I always get that one confused on how to say it correctly, the who God is as far as as his glory and his magnificence. So the question is, how does having all for the right things help defeat our sinfulness? Now, you guys, we've given you more to work with. The gears in your mind are starting to move and mesh with one another. How does having all for the right things, we'll say the things that bring glory to God, help defeat our sinfulness? All right, we got uh,
5: Gary over here. Well, in my case, I could just speak for me. It helps. It helps me to put me in my place. Kind of like Jane, she felt small. God is bigger than me, and okay. He will always be bigger than me. And so uh, that's that's where I'm at with that. All right, then let
0: me ask you this. Hold on, I'm, you're not going to get rid of the mic just yet. Okay. Um, so what does that do? If it if it puts you in your place. And you, your flesh is saying, Gary, I want to do that, and that is the sinful thing. How does awe um, interact with that when you have awe of God? How does that interact with your desire to do something sinful?
5: Well, again, it's, it it's allows me to see who is in control of my heart. And when I'm in control of my heart, I I fade away and I I, I do drift. But when... With the all of God, my all of God tells me that he's bigger than me, he created me, he's, he redeemed me, and I'm going to follow him.
0: Okay, that's good. So listen to this. Oh, go ahead. You want to say something,
1: Sean? I just wanted to thank you for all of that, Gary. Um, I just wanted to connect with, with what he was saying there. And, you know, we asked the question, how does our all of God help us to defeat sin, Right. Um, well, when you when we sit in awe before the majesty of God as he is, as his attributes defined in Scripture and as presented in, in the creation as well, um, which Scripture tells us, by the way, that his attributes are presented to us in creation, uh-huh. uh, his holiness, his transcendence. Um, when we sit before him and worship him as such, there's… It changes us. I mean, our, our desires be, start to, you know, we're worshiping him for who he is. Um, and he, he's working on our hearts to, to change or move us away from sinful desires, move us away, away from ourself. Um, Amen.
0: So you said yeah. the
1: key. Yeah.
0: Now, I want you to hear this. Awe can override fleshly desire. When we're in awe of God and we're speaking of his sovereignty— Our heart doesn't multitask well. Our heart likes idol, an idol, and it goes after that idol, whatever it is, that that thing that is driving us towards sin. So that when we are engaged, we have our heart engaged in the awe of God, that means it's headed off in a direction 180 degrees from the the direction that our our sinful flesh wanted us to be in. I want us to make sure we understand that as we fight our own sinfulness— and we sit there and we say, I prayed to God and I'm not changing. Why am I not changing? Well, one of the things could be is we're not applying what God is teaching in the Bible in our attempts to sin less. Standing in awe of God's power makes it difficult to, to sin because it overrides our wants. You guys tracking with me? So... So when we look at the individual attributes, and this particular attribute is this almightiness. To me, it's one of the, the biggies. Big, so much bigger because we're so limited. It's so much easier to see, maybe, is a better way to say it. So that uh, we need to understand that we need to realize we are constantly seeking awe. We need to seek the right awe in, defi- in defeating our sinfulness. Got it? So... The next question, which is a rhetorical question to you guys, is how do we recapture and realign the awe that controls our hearts? How do we recapture this? this? Well, let's see how this, what this, this lesson teaches us. So let's continue on now with the study. How do we recapture this awe of God and particularly the awe of God's omnipotence, his all-powerful, almighty being? Okay, who's got the mic? Who's, who's reading next?
3: It is stunning to read through Genesis 1 and to watch God speak the various elements and creatures of our world into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. What? Let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. Are you paying attention? Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God saw that it was good, amazing. May wonder fill our hearts." Think with me for a moment. You have never spoken anything into existence in your entire life, and you never will. Mm. Bouquets, bread, and furniture don't burst into existence at our command. What kind of power is it to speak and things physically generate with their distinct beauty and the perfect design to do what they were intended to do in their place in the creation order? Let your creation, imagination loose and look in on that moment when God took a handful of dust from the ground, breathed life into that dust, and created a living, breathing, thinking, relating adult human being, Adam. We see dust become a fully functioning human being with all that this physically and spiritually means with one divine breath. It is the impossible made possible. There are no analogies to this moment. It stands alone as to one of the singular wonders of the awesome power of God. He breathes life into dust. There is no one like him. Here is one of power's highest definitions, the power to breathe life into what had no life.
0: All right, pause right there for a second. He said something that is important. He gave us an example for us to use on how to recapture awe. And the way he worded it, we could go right past it and not recognize it. He said this in the middle of that bottom paragraph with the word let right after the uh, question mark. It says, let your imagination loose and look on that moment when God took a handful of dust from the ground, breathed into that dust, and created a living, breathing, thinking, relating adult human being. God has given us minds that are capable of imagination that is God-honoring. And if we will use that imagination to try and reimagine or recapture the awe of the moment when God created the first human being, it will draw us into a state of awe that pulls us away from our sinful flesh and pulls us away from our desire for sin because we're so focused on experiencing by way of imagination this recapturing of the awe of God. So, to consider that. If that's not in your arsenal for how you defeat sin, put it in your arsenal. Maybe you and, and, and someone at lunch or, or whatever. It's, you know, I, I used to be afraid, and my wife is very quick to, to point out how dangerous it can be when pastors start to speculate. And then you, and now we're going into you know we we move from the actual word of God. Now we totally get that, and she would agree with that too. That is dangerous, but I want you to hear. God has given us imagination. You're not doing wrong when you're trying to imagine what that must have been like. You're trying to draw in your senses to a place where you feel like you are experiencing the awe of God as you play that in your mind. Does that make sense? If you do not have that in your repertoire of defeating your sinfulness, bring it into your repertoire. See imagination as something good and godly in our fight against uh, uh, sin and our desire to defeat the, the sin in the flesh. Okay, let's continue on.
2: As wonder fills your heart, let me make an important distinction. Human beings are creative, but we do not have the power to create. Everything we create begins with raw material. Even the microbiologists who claim that they can generate life in a Petri dish always begin the process with the mixing of chemical substances. They don't actually... They haven't actually created anything. They have simply manipulated created substances to generate something new. They are very skilled and creative scientifically, but it would be disingenuous for them to claim that they have the power to create. There are few better definitions of Almighty power than the power to create a world using no raw material whatsoever.
3: Hmm.
5: Bad things happen when lose sight when we lose sight of how a creation defines for us the Almighty power of God. This is why God lovingly takes time to unpack for Job the difference between what it means to be the creator and what it means to be a a creature. As God does this, we get to see the process of God's exercising his power as creator. The descriptions are meant to blow our minds and Mm -hmm. humble our hearts, that's why they have been preserved for us. In the final chapters of Job, God is yanking Job out of his grief, the kind of grief that makes Job all too self-focused and self-absorbed. By by taking Job on a mind-bending, heart-changing tour of the cosmos, but the focus of this tour is not the glory of the... But the focus of this tour is not... The glory of the cosmos, but the God of awesome power, who created it and makes it do his bidding. In Job 3839 we find we find some of this wildness, most beautiful, and imagination expanding descriptive word pictures that have ever been written. It takes the kind of writing to even come close to capturing, the creation power of the Lord Almighty in a way that would allow us to grasp a bit of his glory. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who sketched the line upon it? Real quick, put yourself
0: in Job's position as as Gary's reading this. Like God is dealing with you one-on-one so you can appreciate what he is doing and drawing you into the absolute contrast of who you are and who he is.
5: Go ahead. Or who stretched the line upon it? On, or what were, on what were, were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? or who shut or who shut in in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when i made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far shall you come and no further and here shall you your proud ways be stayed all right let me
0: jump in again I have manipulated that so that I had to take it out of what the authors, uh, excuse me, what the translators do, which is they put it in a a means of demonstrating that this is poetry. Uh, They put it in short little uh, lines to show to show everybody, hey, this is this is meant to create imagery that would help us have understanding, and we're not to take this literally. We're take we're supposed to take this literary. We take the literary form and what he's doing in poetry to gr- try and grasp, because in, we can't grasp this because we're finite creatures, so he puts it in poetic literary, literary style to help us grasp it. And so even the style he has to communicate it in demonstrates his greatness and, and his complete otherness and his, his incredible almighty power. We should just stand as a lump of nothing. Mm. I got nothing. Like Job, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. I can't even respond. That's the awe God is using. He's demonstrating how to gain awe for him again. He's shocking Job out of his grief and his what what, uh, uh, Paul Tripp called his selfish focus. Was he right in grieving? Yes. Had the time come when he started accusing God for his grief? Yes. So now God steps in and starts dealing with his grief to make sure it's got an alignment, an understanding of, hey, who am I in the midst of your grief? So let's continue on. The, the where
5: you were. The where were you question is meant to humble Job. It's meant to comfort him with the vast difference between him and God. It is meant to comfort him with his weakness. God is enabling Job to see that everything in the universe exists and is held together by one thing, the power of God. It is power that never wonders about capability. It is power that never requires the exercise of effort. It is power with no lack of knowledge or understanding. It is power that never needs instruction or to ask permission. It is power that is without challenge or rival it is power that is gloriously autonomous and self-sufficient. All right, that, that, that stuff just grabs me. Every one of those makes me
0: stop and go, wow, I want to I ponder this thought. My question to you is, which of the six references to God's power is most inspiring to you and why? He lists six there. I actually added in the numbers so that you could see the six and it would be easier to find. Is there one that you come to and you go, man, that one just stopped me in my tracks because... Um, we've got Gerald back here.
6: So uh, number number five, I mean number two. Um, in fact, he mentions it. It's like in the first sentence of this of the of the re- the Sunday School reader that we're reading here about effort. And I was just thinking that everything I do requires effort, mm. and yet God never requires the exercise of effort. Like that is just. That just blows my mind. I mean, I don't even—I can't even <laughs> put my head around that.
0: Anybody else? Go ahead. Uh, Sean has one.
1: So I'm just going to chime right in with Gerald on number two this um, ability, you know, to exercise limitless power without exercise or effort. Of course, it's related to uh, the number six, power that is gloriously autonomous and self-sufficient. Theologians will tell you that, you know, from study of the Word, that God is the only non-contingent being. Okay, so this idea of being… Number six, it is power that is gloriously autonomous and self-sufficient. Everything else that exists depends on something else for its existence. And, of course, who does it ultimately depend on? It depends on God, right? But God is the only being that has no contingency, right? He, He is just limitless, right? So, therefore, his power doesn't require effort because it's just he has
5: all power. Amen. I've heard some debates where there are some people who who want to refine uh, God by our definition of physics. And then I heard the debaters say, well, God created physics, but when he sneezed. (laughs) (laughs) He's the guy, he's the source where what we call physics comes from. So Mm -hmm. uh, there's no debate on that. Good. Personally, as it relates to sin,
0: it is power that is without challenge or rival. Not even the devil. The devil is not his rival. It's not light, dark, day, night. God, the devil. It doesn't that is not actually a comparison. The devil has no comparative uh, power to God Almighty. And yet we fall in that in our sinfulness. Uh, did you see someone's hand? Uh, there, Janet's hand. Uh, did, Janet, did you have a question? I think Janet did. did uh, can you give it to Janet? Yeah. Or comment?
7: When you come to number four, it is power that never needs instruction or to ask permission. The why... is a word that I hear a lot. The why is a word that I think a lot. And the what is right, what should I do? Mm. And questioning, are the leaders doing what they should do? Is this world, where is their information coming from? What do they know? The why is is very big and always looking for the answers. But there's only one place I find the answers, and that's in God, in God's Mm. word. Because he doesn't, he doesn't need instruction, and he doesn't have to ask my permission before he does something. Mm. So he answers the why for me.
0: That's great. That's wonderful. So the point I'm going through this is to get you to draw you. If you're not one that is typically uh, meditating on, God's, on an attribute of God or, or some truth about God, is not really something that is, comes natural to you, you might try. There are six of these. If you start tomorrow... Monday, and go you, and take on one of these per day. You'll get to Saturday, and you will be your week will be filled with meditating on one truth about God's power each day. And hopefully, it'll help draw you into greater awe, remind you to walk by faith and not by sight, and to cause you to sin less that day because you are constantly meditating on the awe of God. All right, let's continue on with our uh, God's enlightening unpacking to be nice uh, uh, what he knows or, or what Job does not know who's next up for reading So, we're, can you lift up
8: which of the six references t- go one t- more down right below okay. the bullet point can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you here we are who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding of the mind, who can number the clouds by wisdom, or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass, and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket, who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help? And wonder about for the lack of food. Job 38, 34 to 41. All
0: right, let's continue on with the can you.
6: The can you question of this passage is the ultimate rhetorical question. It is meant to lay that creature creator line down in a broad fluorescent red ink for us. Job, can you do what I do? Job, do you have the power over everything that exists that I have? The only rational answer is no. My most powerful moment is a universe away from the power that you have. You alone, Lord, have the power to create everything that exists, to put it in its appropriate place, to make it work in coordination with the other created things, and to hold them all together so that the cosmos doesn't descend into irreparable chaos. You alone are almighty. The argument from creation is clear and unassailable. There is no power like the omnipotent power of God. To say that God has the power to create and to control his universe and everything in it simply to say is to simply say that God is God. Mm. There exists no one like him. The power to speak creation into existence is the highest form of power.
0: Okay, we're gonna look at the second side of this. We're gonna look at resurrection power then.
7: But there is a second way the Bible describes God's almighty power. The Bible tells us that God's power is not just creation power, but also resurrection power. And the closer you get to examining and understanding resurrection power, the more you are left in the humbling silence of awe and wonder.
9: We are all used to the finality of death. We learn early that when something or someone dies, it is the end, and there is nothing whatsoever that we can do about it. You are crazy or delusional if you deny that what's dead is dead or if you try to defeat death after it's happened. We have all learned that we must accept death because we have a complete lack of power over it in this way death really is the ultimate enemy not only can we not defeat death but we can't seem to escape it either we live in a world where everything living thing is in the process of dying and we can't do a single thing to stop it so death makes us feel weak and unable death confronts us with how small our power is, death seems to be the enemy that wins every time. We walk away defeated once again because for all of our power, we have no power over death, none.
7: Mm.
9: All right, let's continue.
10: My two oldest sons were confronted with this reality when they were just three and five years old. We lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania, in a neighborhood with
0: lots of trees and lots of birds. Wandering around the yard one day, my sons found a bird that was either sick or injured, and they asked me if we could help it. I got a box, put tissue in it, and laid the bird in the box. While they were sitting and watching the bird, and I was thinking about what I would do next, the bird died. My son saw that it wasn't moving and asked me what was wrong. I had the regrettable job of telling him that the bird had died. They looked at me frustrated and sad, but they knew death is final. Even at this young age, they instinctively knew that there was nothing I could do. Death had taken the bird and had defeated me. We'll keep reading.
8: We don't have to fantasize about what it would be like to conquer death because the Bible shows us what it's like and tells us how important it is. The Apostle Paul argues that this resurrection power... The power to cause the dead to live again is at the heart of biblical faith. See 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection, then Jesus did not rise again from the dead. And if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, then our sin has not been defeated and our, fi- our faith is worthless. God's unique resurrection power is not just another item in our theological outline, but it is the heart of what gives us new life and future hope. Christianity is a resurrection religion. God's grace is resurrection power.
0: All right, let's continue on with those last those next two paragraphs.
4: Consider with me the magnificence of the resurrection of Jesus. He was in the tomb long enough to be certifiably dead. Dead. Rising again after death meant that the synapses of his brain suddenly began to fire. Electric charges fired through his nervous system. The muscles in his heart started to pump. Fresh blood coursed through his veins. His muscles suddenly became soft and flexible. His organs turned on and functioned in symmetry with one another. His eyes became moist and able to focus. He suddenly could breathe, smell, taste, and feel. His balance and orientation returned. His ability to relate and communicate instantly turned on. Thoughts and desires, plans and purposes suddenly rushed in. This is but a limited summary of everything that had to happen all at once for Jesus to be able to get up, fold his grave clothes, and walk alive out of that tomb.
0: For me, that was helpful. That's a reminder of who God is. All that had to come about in the humanness of this body that we have in order for him to do what he did in continuing moving from resurrection to finally to ascension. Let's continue on.
10: Here's what it means to be almighty. No effort was required for Christ to rise again. There was no consideration of whether or not it was possible. There was never a flash of doubt at any point in God's mind. There was no consideration of a plan B. Resurrection was the plan, and God had the power because God is God. Almighty means that not even death has the power to defeat you. Omnipotent means that raising the dead is within the scope of what you are able to do. Resurrection power means your power is unique and unparalleled. The power to resurrect is the highest form of power resurrection power means that the most powerful created thing is very very small and very very weak when compared to you omnipotent means that there is nothing and no one like you the resurrection is a finger that points to the omnipotence of god the power to resurrect separates god from us and everything else only almighty god has the power to bring life out of what was once dead
0: pj just finish it up just jump over the question and go to the last paragraph
10: We find many demonstrations of the power of God in Scripture, but so often they fall short of displaying for us the full extent of the power of God's power. The closest we have to being confronted with and comforted by the power of God's power is the ability to create and the ability to resurrect. Creation and the resurrection both draw the uncrossable line between the creature and the creator. He creates, he resurrects. He is omnipotent. Behold your God. You are his child by grace. He unleashes his power for your good. Yes, you will hit the wall on your own powerfulness, but your Lord has no such wall. There is hope for the powerless because in tenderness, God meets your weakness with his strength.
0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truths that you have taught us this day about your omnipotence. Father, we thank you. We we, we ask that you help our puny little minds, our feeble, weak minds to reflect on these truths throughout the week, to stand in awe of you and and your power, Father, to allow that distinction to control our our thoughts, our hearts, that we might give you the glory due, who you are in character and what you have done indeed, as well as move away from our desire for sin. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.